time to get started. Last call for cheesecake. That's all right, people watching this video, we get cheesecake. As usual, we're recording each week. Uh, you can catch the video every Tuesday. I usually post it on Wednesday on the Disciple Dojo YouTube channel. And also, on your phone, if you're an Android, download the app called SoundCloud. And you can listen to all of these studies going all the way back to uh, Exodus 1. If you're an iPhone person, go to iTunes and find the Disciple Dojo podcast. Same thing. You can listen to everything all the way back to Exodus chapter 1. So again, the goal is to build a library of these studies and as well for people to follow along that can't be here every week or if you miss a week. Uh, also, on the, the quick shameless pitch, on the both iPhone and Android, uh, new podcast series that I put out is four sessions. Each one is about an hour and a half long. And it's called To Know and Be Known, Forming a Thoughtful Biblical Sexual Epic. And it covers everything the Bible says about anything related to sex. And it was a class that we taught at Good Shepherd last fall. And we had a really good reception. So we put it together, we recorded it, turned it into a podcast. And it covers everything. All the stuff that's going on in our culture right now, I don't know if you know that or not, there's a lot about sex going on in our culture. Uh, everything from bathrooms to marriages to boycotts to all that kind of craziness. Well, we deal with that. And we look at that in light of scripture and in light of a historic Christian ethic. And we, the course is not how, excuse me, the course is not what you should think about sex or sexual issues. The course is how you should think about sex and sexual issues. So we actually present the ways that Christians reason through, historically, issues related to sex and sexuality. And it's a really good course. The, uh, eventually, hopefully later this year, I'm going to have it edited into the next DVD uh, small group study that Disciple puts out. But that's pending on whether I can get some funding needed to get it edited by a good video person and all that stuff. So anyway, just keep that in mind. But, but hop on the, if you have a smartphone, hop on SoundCloud or iTunes and download that. Uh, even if you don't listen to it, download it because it helps me. <laughs> so, speaking of sex and sexuality, uh, we are in Leviticus chapter 15. This is the final section, final chapter dealing with laws of cleanness and uncleanness in Leviticus. So, if you've been with us, uh, Leviticus deals with this section, 12 through 15, is God giving the people guidance for how they are going to approach the tabernacle and how they're going to keep what is common from coming into contact with what is holy in a way that in some way defames or denigrates God's presence in their midst. This is the key. God is giving them instructions on how to be a holy, worshiping people. He's not giving them axioms for all humankind for all time. And that's the mistake that some people read when they start Leviticus and they say, oh, these are God's laws for everyone. No, these were God's laws to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant made at Mount Sinai that govern how Israel can or cannot approach God in worship in the tabernacle. That is super important to keep in mind, and this section will end with a re-emphasis of that. 
Because if you don't keep that in mind, then you're going to lose your bearings when you come to a chapter like this and you just think, oh, this is another weird ancient Near East culture that has their weird rituals and their uh, taboos and things like that. It's not about that. We've seen it. Hopefully we've seen, you've seen it if you've been here over the past, uh, since the beginning of the year, that God is teaching them, I'm going to dwell in your midst. I'm pitching my tent among your tents. And for you to have access to my tent, there are some things that are put in place. Because my tent among your tents is an object lesson for you. It's a big visual illustration that's going to serve for you and for generations of people to come. And it's all going to be pointing towards the future plans that I have that will fulfill the promises I made back to your ancestor Abraham. That will fulfill the promises I made back to his ancestor Eve. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that to Abraham it would happen through his offspring. And that to Israel as part of his offspring, you will be the national vehicle through which I draw the nations back to me. And you'll do that by teaching them about me and who I am. So all of Leviticus is concerned with showing that. With, with This is how you're going to uh, embody as a people in every aspect of your society my holiness and what it means to worship me. Because Israel's goal was to teach the nations what worship or the one true God consisted of for them in their covenant setting. And that in turn would get the nations attention and get them uh, questioning at the very least or wondering who what what people has a god like this what kind of god dwells among his people in this way what kind of god has a temple with no idol in the middle the kind of god who the idol is man and woman created in his image the type of god whose temple is a microcosm of the entire universe the type of god who goes with his people where they go and not as, and is not bound by geography like all the other gods of the surrounding cultures so Israel is is a Israel as a people is an object lesson for the surrounding peoples. We can't forget that. You cannot forget that, or you'll go off track when you start to read and study Leviticus and the rest of the Torah. And you start to go off track when you try to pull a verse here and a verse there and, and, and use this as a proof text. And this is what God's like. And this is, it's a whole picture. It's a cohesive story. So we have to read it as such in this chapter is the final chapter that deals so the artistry of Leviticus is amazing. I mean it's just amazing. It's never ending uh, literary artistry in this book that I keep finding new things and, and others find new things all the time in, in terms of balance and symmetry and structure but Leviticus, this section 12 through 15 it starts um, and it addresses issues of purity and issues of like what kind of foods you can eat, what you can take into your body that would render you clean or unclean, and then it goes on to what can happen with your body or your housing or your, you know, your, your garments that can render them unclean. And then it's going to end, this section is going to end with what comes out of your body, which can render you unclean. And all of this plays on what Jesus will pick up later on in the New Testament when he talks about what goes in and what comes out and how those things affect your holiness and your cleanliness. Jesus will take it and, and, and introduce a major change in, in, in salvation history with his words on the subject. But this section is, uh, we've seen in the previous sections too, things that, things that symbolize death are, are to be kept 
away from the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle is the embodiment of God and he is the author of all life. Except for the blood that's shed that brings about death. That blood that's shed that brings about the death of the animal paradoxically is the life-giving element that brings about cleanliness for the one who's offering it. So life and death, clean, unclean, um, blood shed, all of these things are, are huge uh, elements in this tapestry that God's weaving. They're, they're, they're some, their symbolism is deep. And it's not a one-to-one, -one. It's, it's like a symphony. You're hearing, you're hearing echoes and notes and refrains, and you're hearing uh, themes that are coming out the more you read and the more you familiarize yourself with these laws. And they start to make sense within the bubble, within the world of Leviticus, and the symbolic world that it's created. And so things, you can start to see what's going on. Things that, that have to do with life, with the bringing of life, into the world are always in some way connected with death in the human sphere because of the fall and the introduction of sin the, the thing that was meant to bring life would come through heartache and through hurt and through pain in terms of childbirth and so you would have this this whole symbolism of of new life comes into being and there's there's elements of 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 cleansing in life. There's, there's a flow of water, right? When a baby's born, the water breaks, right? There's water. Uh, there's a flow of blood, right? When, when the, the, the stuff that comes out <laughs> when a baby's born, a lot of you know firsthand. Uh, there's, there's, there's blood, there's bodily fluid, there's, there's, there's this life-giving stuff that's happening, but that stuff is also carries echoes of the fall and the curse of death. The loss of blood, the loss of bodily fluids. These, these symbolize at the very same time life and death. And it shows that life and death are, are balanced on a razor's edge. And especially in the ancient Near East, before hospitals, before penicillin, before any kind of neonatal care, life and death frequently came together. One of the number one killers of women in the ancient world was childbirth. And so the new life that was brought about, if the child survived, there was a decent chance the woman wouldn't. And if the woman survived, there was a decent chance the child would, especially after, you know, maybe before it's before second, third, fourth, fifth birthday. So life and death were always intimately connected. And what God is doing is he's, he's kind of presenting that and, and presenting it in, in, to his people in ways where he's teasing out the imagery and, and the theological significance of all these things within what is considered their normal everyday life. So this text now, chapter 15, is perfectly balanced. It's a chiasm. Chiasm is when the biblical structure goes A, B, C, B, A. It makes like this, uh, chiasm goes with the word X, the Greek letter X, and it's the thing that's on top is talked about at the end, and the thing that's next is talked about next to last, and then there's a thing in the middle that kind of hinges it. And that's how this chapter is set up. The first section is going to talk about um, a man and what can make a man unclean within the realms of bodily fluids. And it's going to end with what can make a woman unclean within the realms of bodily fluids. And then the second section will be normal bodily fluid functions of a man. And then that section of the bottom for a woman, normal bodily fluid functions. And then right in the middle will be the sexual relationship with the man and the woman together. And that's the heart of the chapter. 
So this chapter is all about life, death, sexuality, holiness, all of these things, but it's presented in these laws, and if you just speed read through it because you're bored and you want to get to the action of the rest of the Torah, then you, you miss out on the symbolism of what's going on. This is a great chapter. I've never heard this chapter preached ever in a church, not once. Never heard it preached. I've heard it mentioned or alluded to when a passage about Jesus is preached and he has an encounter with a woman who is unclean and who is bleeding and touched the hem of his garment. I've heard it offhand mentioned that this chapter is where you would go for that legislation, but I've never heard this chapter preached on. And it's because sermons on a Sunday morning usually don't draw crowds if they're about blood and semen. <laughs> There's no fancy, no classy way to put that. <laughs> if a sermon is about blood and semen and afterbirth and period flow, not going to be popular with the average Sunday attender. And those are the things in the Bible that I love as a Bible teacher. I love those verses that make people go, ooh, oh, what do we do with that? Oh. <laughs> Write down Ezekiel 23.20 and go look it up later. And you'll see exactly the example of what I'm talking about. Verses and passages that never get preached on. Uh, but to me, those are the most fun to study in a group setting. One, because I see your faces. I get to see who blushes. <laughs> and two, because it's, it's, it's something that doesn't get discussed. Especially in white company. Especially in South Park. Charlotte at an upscale restaurant. They have cloth napkins here. <laughs> and we're about to talk about period and, uh, and male emissions and all of that kind of fun stuff. So, it, and it's, God's timing is hilarious because we had soup today. So while we're talking about bodily fluids, you're eating soup. That makes me laugh. I don't care what any of you think. That's funny. Uh, so let's get into the weird uncomfortableness of chapter 15 of Leviticus. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Speak to the Israelites. Say to them, When any man has a bodily discharge, the discharge is unclean. Whether it continues flowing from his body or is blocked, it will make him unclean. This is how his discharge will bring about uncleanness. Now, pause. What does it mean, bodily discharge? Is that the NIV being PG version of what the original text says? Not really. Actually, that's a decent translation. Literally, it says uh, a discharge, and that Hebrew verb, is, it means to, to ooze or to secrete or to flow. So if something is oozing, secreting, or flowing out of a man, and the text that says bodily, it's, literally it says from his flesh. Same word that's used for, for flesh, body. Uh, it's used all throughout Scripture. The meat of animals is called the flesh. But Scripture in Hebrew uses euphemism all the time. There are very few words that explicitly describe male and female genitalia in Hebrew. There are very few. I, in fact, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know either in, in biblical Hebrew. Modern Hebrew's got it, but biblically, they, instead they use euphemisms. So if they want to talk about the male, they'll use uh, terms like flesh, body, or member. You'll see that word used sometimes. Or they'll use the term feet. That's a popular um, There are ways of describing without being crass, but yet being kind of to the point. So in this section, when it says if a man has a, a discharge from his flesh, scholars and commentators are kind of divided on this. And they, some say this means 
it, this is a euphemism, and it's talking about a discharge from the male sex organ. And that happens when there's like urethral infections or when there's gonorrhea. Oh, how many times you had gonorrhea in a Bible study? Um, when there's stuff like that going on, that's what some scholars say that's what it's talking about. Others say, no, no, it's, it's not using specifically a euphemism. It's broader than that. It's, it's literally anything that discharges. So it could be like an oozing scab. Or some even said it's, it could be included like things like hemorrhoids. Or even like my study Bible cracked me up and said it could be diarrhea. <laughs> Again, not words you hear in most Bible studies. I love it. But the, so it could, it could cover a range of issues. And, and there's, div there's division on that. However, what it's going to tell us, the uncleanness, it's going to pretty much show us why it's talking about stuff coming out of this region, <laughs> right? This, this region here, because of how it makes stuff unclean. Look, it says any bed the man with a discharge lies on will be unclean. Anything he sits on will be unclean. Whoever touches his bed must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will be unclean till evening. Whoever sits on anything that the man has a dis the man with the discharge sat on must wash his clothes and bathe in water and will be unclean until evening. Whoever touches the man who has a discharge must wash his clothes, bathe with water, and he will be unclean until evening. This is this pattern. It's, it's, this is the, the, the uncleanness is it doesn't involve a sacrifice. It doesn't involve like previous things that make unclean where you have to do this thing at the uh, priest with the law. It's just if, if you encounter this, because this is a common thing, whatever it is, it's not a it's not like the leprosy in the earlier chapters that we looked at, the skin diseases. Uh, it's more common than that. This is something that affects regularly in Israel. So the the uncleanness that's involved is just wash and don't go to the tabernacle until after evening. In other words, that's it. That's that's the penalty. You're not kicked out of the camp. You're not morally uh, stricken. You're, you're not committing any sin. Again, what's the purpose? Keep this stuff, this everyday life stuff that makes you unclean, away from the precinct of God's presence in the tabernacle. And so the penalty is the quote penalty. It's not even really a penalty. It's just, and of course, if you're touching somebody that's got discharge, why wouldn't you want to wash? Right? That's just common knowledge. You would want to clean up. Uh, if you're if you're dealing with someone who's who's you know dying, and a lot of people talk about this when you're dying, and, and back in the ancient days when you care for an elder or care for someone who's who's you know they've become whatever incontinent or or they they're you know drooling or they've got all this. I mean, it's just people can be gross when we're sick. It's just how it is. And caring for people. If any nurses are here, they can tell you firsthand you're going to deal with a lot of bodily fluids. You're going to get stuff on you that just is normal. Well, this would apply then. Back in the ancient world, there would be caregivers, and instead of having to just send the sick person out and to the camp to die outside, no, you could continue to care for them. You could continue to serve them. The penalty was you'd have to be unclean for that day. You'd have to wash, and then the next day you could present your sacrifices, and then you could go back and care for the person in need. So it's this balancing act that's God's doing. It makes you unclean, but it doesn't make you an outcast. All right? So this is the, the oh, and it goes on, this is a great verse. I like to write random verses on cards for people like Christmas cards and birthday cards. <laughs> so this is another fun one that you can write, uh, verse Leviticus 15, 8. If, if the man with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, that person must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will be unclean till evening. The Lord be with you. <laughs> like, it's just, it's funny. It's like, what? 
What? But in, again, why would you spit on somebody? Well, in the ancient world, if you spit on someone, one, that's showing contempt. That's a way of symbolically spitting on them or spitting at them is, is a sign of contempt. And you see that later in Numbers, and they'll actually talk about uh, someone you know, showing their contempt by spitting on someone. Or it could be just not actually spitting, but the spit of someone, the drooling, the, you know, uh, it, it could have something to do with that. But regardless, what's the penalty? Unclean till evening, wash your clothes, everything's good. So it goes on, uh, verse 9. And this is how people think that, that this, this charge is talking about coming from a specific area of the body. Everything the man sits on when riding will be unclean. Whoever touches any of the things that were under him will be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up those things must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will be unclean till evening. Anyone the man with the discharge touches without rinsing his hands with water must wash his clothes, bathe with water, and he will be unclean till evening. So a person with a discharge, whatever type of discharge that is, you could still carry on your daily life. Just wash your hands. Don't touch somebody without washing your hands. And that's just good hygiene, by the way, uh, when anybody's sick. What do they tell you to do in flu season? Wash your hands. This was, again, is that the purpose of all this legislation, to preserve hygiene? No. But does that have that effect? Sure. Verse 11. Anyone the man with discharge touches without rinsing his hands with water must wash clothes, bathe with water, and he will be in the clean till the evening. Verse 12. A clay pot that the man touches must be broken. Any wooden article is to be rinsed with water. When a man is cleansed from his discharge, so when, when whatever this is affecting him, whether it's an STD like gonorrhea or whether it's something like hemorrhoids or whether it's anything else, when a man is cleansed from his discharge, he's to count off seven days for his ceremonial cleansing. He must wash his clothes, bathe himself with fresh water, and he will be clean. On the eighth day, this is like the, the regulations for uh, skin diseases, he must take two doves or two young pigeons, come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and give them to the priest. The priest is to sacrifice them, the one for a sin offering, the other for the burnt offering. In this way, he will make atonement before the Lord for the man because of his discharge. The man now is able to enter back into the regular sacrificial worship life of Israel after he's been cleansed from it, just like the leper who was cleansed was able to come in. So this is like a, a lesser degree of those skin diseases that we read in previous chapters. But it's the same concept. There's something that mars you from being in God's presence in the tabernacle. And when you're cleansed of that and the priest announces, yes, you are cleansed of that, you bring your thanksgiving gift, your offering, and you present your purification offering, which is what sin offering should be translated as, as we've seen, your purification offering, and your whole heart offering, which is the giving to God and the thanking God for you being able to enter back into the community of life. And that's it. That's it. Now, it's going to go on to talk about normal discharges that aren't related to death or sickness or decay. It'll say, verse 16, when a man has an emission of semen, again, not something here at every Bible study, he must bathe his whole body with water and he will be unclean till evening. Any clothing or leather that has semen on it must be washed with water. Again, not rocket science. And it will be unclean till evening. That's it. That's it. Anytime a man has, and literally it says, an emission of that word semen, what do you think that word in Hebrew literally is? Those of you who've been here for this study for a long time. Seed. seed. It's the word seed. Whenever seed leaves the body, Hebrew doesn't have a word for semen. The word for semen, the word for seed is the same word for what you throw in a field to make crops grow. And that's common in the ancient Near East. That's what, that was what it was considered. The man was considered producing seed 
that seed would find its purchase within the, 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 the earth or the, the soil of the woman. And from that, life would bring forth. Do you see why pagan fertility uh, cults, pagan fertility religions were so tied up with, with, with ritual sex, with sacred prostitution, with things like that? We've talked about this before in Genesis and in Exodus. We've mentioned this, but it's worth emphasizing clearly, especially in this chapter, in Israel's neighboring religions, Egypt, the religions of Mesopotamia, Babylon, uh, Assyria, Canaan, particularly Canaan. Ancient religion worked like this. You knew that if you sowed seed into the ground, then if it rained on the seed and the seed was fertile, the ground was fertile, crops would grow. If that didn't happen, you died and your family starved. So in order to make that happen, anything that would increase those chances of that fertility of the soil was seen as a, as a necessity for the common good. Same thing with animals. You know your animals would mate. One would impregnate the other with his seed, and then after a while, the other would start to show and would be pregnant, and then new animals would be born, and your, crop, your flocks would increase. If that didn't happen, you died, and your family starved. So fertility was everything in the ancient Near East. You died without fertility, literally. If you didn't have children, your family name dies. So the utmost importance was securing the fertility of, of the world around you. How do you do that then? Well, depending on the gods you worship, uh, the gods were the ones who determined whether fertility happened, whether seed grew. And this entire system, this elaborate system of basically heaven, what happens in heaven happens on the earth. What happens on the earth is mirrored in heaven. So if you want there to be fertility and procreation and abundance on the earth, among your crops or your animals or even yourself, then there had to be fertility and abundance of that up in heaven. If you wanted your sexual uh, life-giving force to, to, to bring forth fruit, whether in the animal kingdom, in the plant kingdom, or in the human kingdom, then the gods had to engage in their sexual activity to bring forth life in the heavenly realms. And so it became that uh, gods like Baal, Baal was the storm god. So when there was a storm, that was Baal. And when it rained on the earth, that was Baal's seed, that was Baal's sperm. That was Baal's semen falling into the field, the earth, that was Asherah, the mother goddess, and her womb. And it penetrated into the womb. All this imagery is sexual. And from that, life would come out. So this, the cosmic sex act was seen as mirrored on the earth in, in earthly sexual acts. So that's why ancient fertility religions almost always involve ritual prostitution. Because if you wanted to incite the lusts of the gods so that they would get it on, like Marvin Gaye says, then you had to get it on in their presence in a way that was blessed and sacred. So you go to the high places, you engage with the Kedeshim, which is the Hebrew word for the holy ones, and it literally means holy ones, but it were the temple prostitutes. You engage in sex acts with the prostitutes there, and by doing that, you are inciting and enticing the gods to engage in their version of the sex act, which then will bless your crops, your flocks, or yourself with abundance. 
So all of this sex, sex and religion were intricately interwoven in Israel's neighbors, from Egypt to Mesopotamia, all over. There was no separation of it. So all of this, Israel enters into the mix. God enters into human history. He calls out a people, Israel. He says, you alone are going to be different. You're going to be holy. And one of the ways, we've seen the different ways that's going to happen through your diet, through how you treat uncleanness, how you treat things like childbearing and the purification of that. And in this chapter, how you treat even the process of sex, even the process of sexuality. Sex is going to be seen as ceremonially unclean. However, this is where you have to see Leviticus in its proper section. We'll talk more about this next week because we're out of time. When we do the second half of this chapter, we'll talk about the fellas and their discharge. Ladies, you're next week. But we're going to see that the sex act is what God wants for people. What was the first command he gave in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. That is a command to have lots of sex and lots of babies, literally. <laughs> The sex act was seen as how the covenant would carry on. It would carry on to your seed, your offspring, your descendants. And so now we come to Leviticus and you would expect God to incorporate the sex act into Israel's worship. And he does the exact opposite. He says this is going to be, this is, this is a, the, the, the act of a man and a woman sleeping together is what God intended. It's a good thing. He loves it. He's going to give a whole book of the Bible about it called Song of Songs. It's, it's great, but it is not ever to be confused or intertwined with worship of the Holy God. Because God is not moved in any way to bless people through their sexual acts. That does not stir up his lust. That does not entice God to bring fertility like it does with Baal or Asherah or any of the other gods of the ancient Near East. It is to be kept out of the realm of the tabernacle. And even later in the regulations for Israel's army, before they go into battle, they're going to refrain from sex before they go into battle because for Israel, battle was holy action because God was the one leading the armies. So even in that, there's going to be this separation between the good thing called sex and the good thing involving uh, emissions of seed and, as we'll see next week, the good thing involving the monthly flow of a woman's normal menstrual cycle. All of these things that symbolize both life and death at the same time, they're separate from the tabernacle, from God's presence. But we're out of time. So next week, come back and again, get ready to squirm and be uncomfortable. <laughs> See you then. <laughs>